Welcome back to another episode of The Content Lab. I am Liz Moorhead, Editor-in-Chief here at Impact. I'm joined as always by my co-host, John Becker, Impact's Revenue and Features Editor. And John, we are not alone. We, have we are not alone. We've been infiltrated. Freeze, her vision is based on movement. No, that didn't work. <laughs> Just kidding. We have someone else with us today. Hello, Stranger Danger. Introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Ramona Sukraj. I am a former, which is weird to say, uh, editor from Impact and the current manager of Demand Gen. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. But you're not a former anything. I don't know. It feels weird. Like this, I, I thought you were going to introduce me, to be honest. <laughs> so it's like, I was me like, oh, this is the first time I'm being introduced with that title. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the floor, everybody. Ramona Sucroge, the manager of demand generation and DEI editor at Impact. Snaps only, please. <laughs> Wait, was that good? Did, you, did I do it right? I, I dug it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I also think you, Ramona is still an editor, but you can also never stop being an editor. I'm picturing Ramona reading anything in her life and like, she's like noticing little grammar errors and her eye starts twitching and she starts, you know, correcting. Honestly, you click we out the looking, pen. <laughs> we were looking at a, uh, uh, just like a, a plan for when Kristen goes on maternity leave. And uh, there was a little tiny typo. There was an E missing from employee and immediately- Please tell me you corrected it on I'm like, document. I'm sorry, my editor brain, like- <laughs> it's, a it's both a feature and a bug is what I'm hearing. Yeah, no, I have the same problem. Uh, and for those who are listening at home, Kristen is our director of demand generation. Uh, and she's about to have a baby, which is so exciting. Any day um, I know, who is gonna correct her typos though while she's gone? Like, are you just gonna like send like little missives? Like, don't forget I before E except after, et cetera. <laughs> I feel like it's part of our duty, you know? In yeah. life, just correct. It's everything. a civic duty. It is. <laughs> yeah, duty. We're making the world a better, more well punctuated, <laughs> yeah, more accurately spelled place. <laughs> I'm not seven years old laughing at the word duty, which segues so delightfully into our topic. Please, John, save me from myself. Save Ramona uh -huh. and you from myself. <laughs> nice one. So. Here at the Content Lab, we talk about all manner of content marketing, and that mm -hmm. takes a lot of different forms. And I, I love the fact that recently we've been continually expanding the way that we talk about, or, or the, the, the breadth of what we talk about. For instance, on our last episode, uh, we dove into Google updates and, and SEO best practices and, and how to kind of stay on top of that. We've talked about filming and scripting and web page copy and a lot of things that are beyond just the articles that you write for, that you might write for, for a website. And so today we're diving into something that is, I, I'm really excited for, but also I'm, I'm a little kind of embarrassed by the fact that we haven't explicitly addressed this before, which is how content can be enhanced and improved and um, expanded when we consider it through a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. And this is something that I think we're all really interested in, all really uh, inspired by, but it's something that Ramona has particular expertise in and particular passion for. And we are excited to 
pick her brain and hear her insights about how every business uh, to, to really content is about is about serving your buyers well and how every every business can better serve its customer base by expanding its awareness. And I, I also think it's worth noting here, one of the reasons why we're having Ramona on is not only is she, I mean, I, I can't believe you literally said former editor. You're still the editor of our DEI content for Impact. And not only that, you have been from the beginning, one of the driving forces behind DEI initiatives within Impact. Um, and I'd love for us to start our conversation from there. You know, there. DEI is something that I believe more people are it, it, talking about as they should be. But from your perspective, what has made this for you that professional passion? Um, you know, yeah, it's something I've been pushing quite a bit at Impact for a few years now, but it wasn't really until the, you know, pretty horrific events of last year with George Floyd and things like that, things really kind of got a fire under them. And, um, the reason I've kind of always really pushed this is because like, obviously we're on a podcast here. You can't really see my face, but you know, um, I am an Indo-Caribbean girl. I was raised, my parents are from British Guyana and uh, our family is Hindu and, you know, growing up Connecticut representation and having a community from my same background is not something I really had. Um, it wasn't until like kind of, maybe in the past 10 years or so that I started to see people like myself in the media and marketing and advertising in television shows. And um, when it started to happen, I got really excited. Like I felt like I was drawn to it, even if it was like the most terrible television show ever, I wanted to watch it because I felt like, hey, you know, I'm seeing a part of myself here. And in recent years, uh, as that's become more common, I've started to recognize and see more research about the value of that for marketers. Um, you know, essentially just like how I would gravitate towards a show or a story or a movie um, because I saw someone like myself reflected in that. Uh, that's something that marketers can take advantage of as well. They can appeal to a wider audience by showing people from more diverse backgrounds. And that doesn't have to be racial. It could be gender. It could be religion. It could be um, age. There are so many different groups and different aspects of people that we overlook that we really could be using to reach them. So I see the, you know, the, the first level of that is, I, I think, an important one, a visual one, whether that's in, in, in footage and in imagery and um, just any kind of visual asset that a company might, might put out in a commercial, in a, on a website, in an article, anywhere, uh, to have photography and imagery that is more broad in its, uh, in its depiction of people. Um, but it goes beyond that too. Like it's not just choosing better stock imagery. There are sincere and, and more uh, and deeper aspects to the, this issue. And I'd love to, I'd love to kind of to dive into that a little bit. That is something I am very interested in talking about today because Ramona, when you were working on the editorial team, you and I talked about this a lot that it's like, oh, it's not just going to Shutterstock and searching like diverse team <laughs> collaboration. 
look guys, we did it. We're diverse. The thing that always struck me in the way that you talk to people. Yeah, I know the, the <laughs> thing, cause we're in this together. The thing that you always, that always struck me about the way you framed it to others and helped them be educated and also educated myself is it's kind of like this idea of they ask you answer, right? Like your ideal customers are asking questions and they're on online. You are seeking to answer those questions in the content that you're creating. But what assumptions are you making about that they and who they are and how diverse they may be or, or not be? Because that seems to be the core of this, right? And usually where I hear you start talking about this is, and so can you talk to us a bit more about what it means to challenge assumptions? For sure. So like they ask you answer, one of the big things that we always start that conversation with is saying that, you know, the modern buyer has changed. And when we have that conversation, we, we, we talk a lot about buyer behavior saying like everyone's searching online, but like it's more than buyer behavior. Like the modern buyer, especially, you know, in the United States and North America, they're not, they're not what they were 10 years ago, even five years ago. They may not be, they may not look or live or act the same way that they did um, a number of years ago. And marketing with diversities, with DEI in mind is essentially making sure that you're thinking outside of that box. So like, for example, let's say, you target business owners, like maybe you have a SaaS or something like that. And you've always assumed that your buyer is a middle-aged white man who lives in, you know, the Midwest. Um, ultimately that's, <laughs> that's really limiting your reach and it's limiting your potential profit because if we're being realistic, you know, walk into any store, walk into any business, a business owner could be any age, any gender, um, any religion, they could be speaking any language. Why would you want to limit your marketing by just assuming that your buyer is from this one very narrow group? And when it comes to like, they ask you answer, that usually comes back to thinking about the questions, right? We always say that it comes back to answering the major concerns and problems of your audience. And doing that with kind of a DEI lens is reminding yourself that people from different backgrounds may have different problems. They may have different concerns and questions related to your product or service. And if you're not answering those, like, how are you gonna reach them? Yeah, that, that, that feels so important. Um, and, and it's something you said yesterday, Ramona, before we were recording, which I love as well. Like they might even have the same questions. They just might be asking them in a different way. You know, like, like it, it, it might be a slight shift, it, it, it might be, you know, completely expanding the way you think about um, your customer base, but it also might be just expanding the way you think questions are being asked. And it really all comes down to knowing your audience and to to really kind of to, to listening to them. Yeah, exactly. So for uh, for a business, like, how do you attack this? Um, you know, we always say that to start by talking to your sales team, right? Knowing what people are asking in the sales process and in the conversations they're having. But obviously, you know, if right now the only group that you're getting is in a very narrow market, that can be really hard to do. Um, I guess it just comes down to doing some good old market research and trying to speak to people in those groups who, um, who would be a potential buyer for you. Because like you said, John, it's like, 
it could they could be asking the same exact question, but searching a different word or um, thinking about it in different terms. Like, um, let's say there's like an elevator company who's based in the US, like maybe they do repairs so or they build elevators, something like that. Um, if they wanted to expand into the UK, buyers over there would be searching the term lift, not elevator. So it's a matter of like creating articles or creating messaging using that word instead of elevator to appeal to them, to resonate with them. Even if you go beyond that, like it's, again, you're essentially speaking the same language, but because they live in a different location, they use different slang, quote unquote. Um, that's what you need to know and understand in order to like show them that you understand them and that you know where they're coming from. I want to ask a question here that it's not a devil's advocate question, but I know it's a question I've heard others ask. And it's not one that I would ever ask, but I think it's worth, we, we have to ask it. You know, there are some folks who might be sitting here listening to it, or maybe they know their bosses might be questioning this. What, what is the business case for it? You know, is it really, is it really worth the time and the effort to put forward these DEI efforts, whether that's bringing visibility into your visuals, taking the time to do this research. I mean, a lot of businesses may feel like they already understand their customers very well. Is there any data around there that that supports that folks want to see more representation, that it influences their purchasing decisions? Oh, for sure. In recent years, especially like in the past two years, there's been a ton of research behind this. Um, I saw some some reports fairly recently from Microsoft and Forrester, and um, they were showing that especially Gen Z, who, you know, Gen Z is coming up. They're not as young as we think they are. They're in like their early 20s. They're going to be huge buyers soon. Um, they especially want to see diversity and inclusion in the advertising and marketing that's around them. They see it as like a sign of authenticity and a brand that, you know, is trustworthy. Um, there's also been a ton of research that like, especially in the United States, uh, there's about 40% of the population that comes from, my, from a minority or multicultural background. But so many brands don't embrace DEI in their marketing. So they're not speaking to that group. They're not appealing to that group. And that's such a huge untapped market that you could be reaching if you if you did a little bit more research or dug a little bit deeper into these things. And, you know, we said it was about content, but again, it's like, it's not just a matter of like shifting a couple of words. Like you really want to try and get into the headspace of these other buyers. Um, like, we use the one about the elevator, but like what, and like a personal experience that I tend to have is like, let's say you're a makeup brand, right? A lot of times a concern I have if I buy makeup or buy like an eyeshadow palette per se, um, where you want the colors to be bold, you want them to be really pigmented. Unfortunately for a lot of makeup brands, those don't show up as well on people with darker skin. So I often will find myself searching on Google or searching on YouTube for eyeshadow palettes to show up better on darker skin. So let's say that's your brand. You're going to want to create content around that. Like how well does this show up on darker skin or like the best options for darker skin or even, you know, going beyond race or background like that. Um, let's say you're like a SaaS company or you have a web app, something like that. People who have like visual impairments may be looking and asking themselves if your tool is accessible. 
they may be looking for the best options that are going to be actually usable for them. And, you know, if you're not thinking about these groups, you're not going to be creating content or creating messaging to appeal to these audiences or get found when they're searching for those answers. It does feel like there has been such a proliferation in the last, I don't know, 12 to 24 months of uh, the, the way brands are marketing themselves. There just is, is such a dawning awareness of showing lots of different races and body types and relationships and, and levels of, of physical ability. It feels like they're, they're what I never saw it feels like this is a blind spot that's been suddenly kind of shown the spotlight. And it's it's amazing to see. Literally Paul Channel had like diverse Christmas movies over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. The exactly. whitest of the white, the straightest of the straight, the most heteronormative <laughs> type of content out there. They had, I think last year they had their first um Christmas movie featuring a gay couple where they weren't dealing with like, it was just them being a couple, you know? And I, and a friend of mine said like, I never watch Hallmark movies, but I watched it cause it was nice to see um, gay representation on screen without somebody dying mm. <laughs> or there being some sort of like horrifying thing. They were just like living their lives. And that was a, a huge thing. You're right. I have. I remember seeing that there was like uh, a lot more interracial romances as well, and I was like, "Oh wow, that's really great of Hallmark." You know, they're branching out. <laughs> yeah, and outside of the sassy, the sassy black friend. Trope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it felt it felt like when when you <laughs> saw like an interracial couple at an advertisement five to ten years ago, that was newsworthy. Mm -hmm. Which you know, obviously, it, it doesn't feel to all of us. It doesn't feel strange to see an interracial couple but to depict that publicly in in outward facing media was newsworthy and now it feels like no one bats an eye which is awesome fantastic amazing but is also not like we haven't made it we haven't like fixed everything <laughs> there, yeah. there's still a long way to go and and that would be kind of my question to you Ramona is like how do you move beyond or how do brands move beyond the like like Liz was saying before, see, I, I searched in Shutterstock and now I have a person of Asian descent in my, you know, in my, in my stock imagery. How do you move beyond that kind of like tokenism, those kind of like symbolic gestures that don't feel all that sincere to those actually literally hear the C-level exec in the background, checking <laughs> off the, the DEI to-do list. <laughs> and giving himself a raise. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> I, a white man, have solved inclusivity. <laughs> Let's not assume that the CEO is a white man, Liz. I know. <laughs> but, so how do you get how do you get past that, Ramona? Yeah, I mean it's it's not easy. Um, just to give it like a shameless plug, but you're right. There has been like a lot more um, diversity in marketing in recent years, and it's really cool to see. You know, we published a few articles on it, and like. Um, before I get into that, like one thing that just like really stuck out to me when you were talking about it is like one of the examples I pointed out, but there was a, a bridal shop. I can't remember what it was, but a bridal shop that in their window display, they put it on a, um, a mannequin that was positioned in a wheelchair. And that was just like, people were so touched by it and people were so like, 
surprised, like pleasantly surprised to see it. And you, you ask yourself, you see this and you're like, you know what? Yes. People in wheelchairs get married all the time. Why have we never portrayed that before? And, you know, it just, it, it makes you wonder like, yes, why, like, why have we had this blind spot to that before? Um, but that being said, you know, it brings it back to that relatable experience, right? Like get, getting married, having a romance like that. Um, one of the things that I kind of, uh, one of like the actionable things that I was trying to get across in these example articles is just about talking about universal stories or universal pain points, but giving it a little bit of a twist. So like you can talk about the, the experience of being stuck at home during the pandemic with your family and trying to work and educate your kids and do everything from within your home, but it just happens to have a same-sex couple at the home of that story. Like you can still, anybody could still watch the story and relate to the experiences they're going through. So the fact that it's a, a same-sex couple is just kind of a passing thought. Um, so that's kind of the, the main message I would say is like really focus on the things that are the, that are um, universal truths, I suppose. Because I'm sitting here thinking, I could imagine being someone who is well-meaning, extremely well-intentioned, ready to like go out, do the research, ask questions. And I would wanna know in doing my research, it's kind of a twofold question. Mm. How do I actually conduct this research, right? Like it's, it's a very broad statement to say like, go out and conduct research on your audience, great. So what is a great place to start with that? And then especially when you start having these very sensitive discussions around someone's identity, how that may influence, what questions they're asking, what they're looking for, what are the most appropriate ways to phrase those questions? Or do you have questions that you would recommend people ask as they're going through this process? Because I could see someone well-meaning accidentally being very offensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's obviously the difficult area um, for anybody. You know, none of us can really speak out of our own experience. And it makes you nervous. It makes you nervous to, to know how to ask these questions. Um, for everything that I've kind of gathered is like ultimately the best way to do this is kind of bring, bring that group in house. You know, if you're trying to appeal to a group um, that you haven't appealed to before, it's, it's best to bring them into your company and have them understand your product, your service, and be able to offer that perspective simultaneously. That's not easy, obviously, but um, that's probably the, the smartest approach to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, having a diverse team allows you to speak in diverse voices to a diverse audience. For sure, you know, until we're at a place where everyone, you know, can be a little bit more culturally sensitive or is well-versed in diversity training, I feel like the younger generation is getting better about communicating these differences. <laughs> um, but until we get to that point, um, you really, you just kind of want to make sure that you, um, you're not speaking out of place and having somebody on your team from that background or a similar background or something like that, um, will help, help you avoid that. I think. It's so funny because I, I think so often there is like the argument 
I don't want to say the anti-diversity argument, but I think about something like same-sex couples and it's like, well, how am I going to explain this to my children? And like, kids just get it. It is so not, a, the first wedding my daughter ever went to was a same-sex couple. And when she was, she was like three years old running around and, and she's like, when I grow up, I want to, I want to, <laughs> I want to marry this other little girl that she was like running around with, who was like a flower girl. And we're like, great, cool, whatever. And it was, it was like this, this wonderful moment where we think they're going to like somehow struggle. Children are going to somehow struggle with that. And we're like, yeah, well, she loves her and they're getting married. And she's like, cool. Well, that's the thing, right? I feel like I've, I've seen that before too. It's like, it just gets back to, back to the basics where it's like, oh, you get married because you love someone. And it's like, oh, I love them. So why can't I marry them? And it's, it's really sweet. That's the thing about having diverse marketing. It's like right now, it has that modifier, right? It's inclusive marketing, but I feel like, you know, five, 10 years down the line, I hope we, we get rid of that modifier. And this is just kind of, kind of what our marketing is inherently. Like, it's not going to be weird to see people of multiple backgrounds in the same commercial or anything like that. Um, and yeah, the research shows it, you know, Gen Z, you know, the people who are coming up today, the kids in, in school today, they're much more open and um, I guess just educated in that area. And this is kind of the expectation when they're going to be our buyers, you know, we want to make sure that we're aligned with that. It's funny. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a cover story for a local magazine profiling women in beer. And I interviewed these three different women. And to be clear, women in craft beer is like, it's a distinct minority. (laughs) Uh, which is hilarious because brewing hundreds of years ago was exclusively done by females and <laughs> ran that shit. You know what I mean? Like we were awesome. And then it became industrial and commercialized and people realized they could make money from it. And thus it became a man's product. So in this interview, I interviewed three different women across three different disciplines in craft beer. One was a brewery co-owner. One was a brewer herself. And the other was someone who worked in like the sales aspect and also ran like a niche boutique uh, barrel age program. And when I was speaking with the owner, I said, all right, let's just rip this bandaid off. And it's someone who actually happens to be a friend of mine. Um, she said, I said, so what is it like to be a woman in beer? And she laughed and said, I look forward to a day when the first question somebody asks me in an interview <laughs> is not about what it's like, like any sort of gendered thing. I, I can't wait for that day when I'm not asked about what it's like to be a woman in beer. Would love to just be asked about like, what's it like to be an owner of a craft brewery during a difficult economy? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, I love it. The idea that it, it, it this is a um, you know, sort of unfortunate process that we need to go through until it's no longer needed, until it's no longer a process, until it's no longer a conversation that needs to happen. Yeah, I think it'll happen. I'm definitely hopeful that it's going to happen, but, you know, I'm like super grateful to be discussing this. And, you know, I, I hope part of the reason I really wanted to talk about this is because I know there's that pushback. I know that a lot of people look at diversity and inclusion and they think it's, it's purely like the nice thing to do. Um, but it, it's really not. It's like, you know, from the business perspective, yes, it, it is the nice thing to do, you know, let people from other backgrounds feel like, they belong and can see themselves as well. But as a business, that's just the smart thing to do. 
uh, it's just like you're opening yourself up to like such a bigger audience and such an opportunity to profit and and grow. I know we've already learned a lot today, but the learning never stops at Content Lab. John Becker, take us into the learning corner. What do you got for us this week? So I have a little bit of research that uh, we can link and um, in the show notes, you can check it out there. But it is all about uh, putting numbers in our headlines. And we are just human nature. We're drawn to like listicles and like, ooh, let's check out the seven best reasons for this and the organized, organized. Exactly. Exactly. And, and give me a slideshow, give me a list. I love it. Um, and I think we're all like that. So this is a, uh, a bit of research from Vengage and they looked at, um, 120,000 blog posts to determine what numbers, uh, you should use and what numbers get the most clicks. And, Ramona and Liz, do you have a guess for which number by far uh, received, if it's in the headline? So let me just sort of make sure we understand that. So if it was like six reasons you should do this or, or something like that. So what number in a headline got the most clicks over these hundred, more than a hundred thousand pieces that people looked at? Seven. Give a guess. Seven, Ramona? I feel like it's five and I really dislike lists of five. Well, you are both wrong. It is 10. It is 10. I hate number list. I I know. David Letterman was right. Top 10. We love it. Uh, And so 10 was first. And Ramona, I'm sorry to say five was second. Mm -hmm. Um, So then it goes into, you know, some, some random numbers that strangely certain numbers like three, four, and seven tend to do pretty well. Um, And when you get up like too high, it can feel a little bit overwhelming unless you're doing something that are very short or you're trying to be really comprehensive and say like, these are the, I don't know, 50 best movies of all time, or these are like the 27 somethings you need to know. Uh, So Obviously, it depends on context. Obviously, these are not hard and fast rules, but according to this research, people love number 10, they love number five, and then some strangely random numbers that get thrown in, like seven. I think lucky seven, I think that's pretty pretty standard. Well, that's an arbitrary number because then the list feels purposeful. Whenever it's even, it's just like somebody who gets angsty about what the volume number is on the TV made this list. (laughs) something got chopped off to make it the right number well see that's how I like I know that the idea of like the top 10 and the top five are like ingrained in our brains and that's probably why people flock to them but like to me I would the I like to go for odd numbers like seven or four or three because I feel like it's different it's different you're gonna wonder like "Hmm, why is it just four like why is it just three I totally agree and that's what I think the the kind of balance is that like Liz was saying, sometimes it feels like 10 is an appropriate 
yeah. I don't know, kind of bracket to put around whatever you're talking about. And sometimes, you know, as Ramona says, uh, it feels like to make the list feel complete, it should be a random number because if there are 13 great examples, you should put in 13 examples, not cut three and make it 10. But uh, the one thing that they said was uh, far and away, never use the number two. And I think that's totally right. Like you could either make it a you know, go up to three, come up with a third example. Um, it, it's like when you're making a, a outline or something, you know, you don't just do like one bullet under something, you do more than one so that it, it looks a little bit more balanced and, and normal. But the number two is uh, the least, if, if something has two in its title, that is the least shared of, uh, of any number. You know what, John, I'm gonna have to find this article for you. I remember years ago, maybe 2014, 2015, I wrote an article. It was like the two rules that you need to follow. It was great information, but yeah, two is an odd number. An so odd number. Yeah. there you go for, uh, for your edification. But usually we uh, have Liz or, or me talk about something that we're reading, but we're going to instead put Ramona back on the hot seat. Ramona, what's yeah. something that you're reading that you'd like to share with our audience? Sure. Yeah. I'm kind of working through two books right now. One is one that is, you know, related to impact and some of the things we're working on. It's The Forever Transaction, and it's by Robbie Kelman Baxter. It's basically talking about the strategy behind things like uh, subscription services. So like Netflix and how they made that work and other services like that, which are booming right now. Um, super interesting and very tactical. Um, just started it, but I really enjoy the science behind it. So that's one that I'm reading through on the professional end. And then the other one that I'm reading on the personal end is actually a little related to the conversation we had today. It's called Untold, Defining Moments of the Unrooted. Um, it's an anthology by a, um, a South Asian online magazine for, uh, it's called Brown Girl Magazine. And essentially it's an anthology of different stories from girls from the South Asian diaspora, um, just talking about, you know, uh, very personal, personal stories of, from like coming out to abusive relationships to um, finding yourself, just a bunch of things that are, are fairly taboo in society in general, but especially in South Asian culture. Um, and, you know, it's from girls from all different backgrounds, uh, Indo-Caribbean like myself, um, just people all over the world. And it's really cool to see how, um, you know, despite having all of these different upbringings, uh, we all can root back to these same values and the same experiences. Um, so that's been a really fun read for me as well. Nice. Well, Ramona, we're so psyched to have you. We'd love to have you come again into the lab. We won't make you, you know, we won't, I don't know, haze you or, or pepper you with really unfair Stumbling questions. Stumbling over his words because he's lying to you. <laughs> we'll haze you. Every time? Come on, guys. <laughs> well, anyway... <laughs> Thank you so much, Ramona, for joining us today. John, as always, for asking incredible and insightful questions. Uh, although I'm still mad about the little pop quiz and the even numbers, I'm going to move on with my life. And to everybody else listening, thank you for tuning in. And we will talk to you the next time we are in the lab. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.